0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Yon Grillo about Blood Gun Money. First, wanted to let you know about BooksOnPod.com. It's where you can go to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And for the latest on this show, follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at BooksOnPod.
1: I'm Temoris Greco, a Mexican journalist. I'm the author of Killing the Story, Journalists Risking Their Lives to Uncover the Truth in Mexico. I just had a great conversation with
0: Trey Ehrling from Books Unpub. Hello, readers. Yon Grillo is a contributing writer at the New York Times based out of Mexico City, specializing in crime and drugs. He's also an award-winning author whose newest book is Blood Gun Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels. Yon, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. Good to be here, Trey. Oh, absolutely. The pleasure's all mine. So what was your goal with this book, Yon?
1: Well, this, uh, this book um, is looking at the firearms trafficking uh, into Mexico and in the United States and, and beyond around the world. And this really came about after many years covering, investigating violence in Mexico. And you know, I had uh, this idea of a book for some years ago um, because it, you know, seen this particularly this huge amount of firearms come from the United States. For many years, I thought that the U.S. gun issue was kind of a brick wall that we couldn't really, you know, there was not, you know, what could we say about this? It was such a brick wall; there was no room for maneuver on this. The the gun rights were so strong. But then I realized in 2017 when I did an interview with a firearms trafficker in prison in Ciudad Juarez, a guy profiled in the book. um, But then I just did this interview with him, and he told me the story about how he was driving up from juarez up to the dallas area every weekend and buying these you know dozen or more ar-15s and other guns and driving back to mexico with them and how he was buying them with no paperwork whatsoever just like no idea at all, buying these guns and then i went to check out his story and realized the the issues there of how he was doing that he described it as a black market at the gun shows but really it was this idea of a private sale loophole, and then they have collectors who don't need ID, but then people abuse that and are actually trafficking weapons through that. So I realised there's actually a lot in this about actually how these guns are moved. How is it that 200,000 guns a year are trafficked from the United States to Mexico? You know, really, how is that happening? What's going on? What are What is the nature of the laws and debate about these laws? And I realised as I got into the subject, subject, it was all a lot more complicated than I first believe there is a lot to talk about and there is also chance to change this it's not set in stone you know we can make change and progress on this issue what
0: happened between a pair of ice officials and two cars full of zetas in a mexican desert on february 14th 2011 that ultimately started a chain of events to allow for you and others a better understanding on how the
1: illegal gun trade works so Uh, In February 2011, uh, two agents for the ICE or the uh, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement were in Mexico. They were on a a, a strange mission. They've been sent from Mexico City to um, halfway up to Monterrey to collect a bunch of equipment and take it back. It was through quite dangerous areas. They were driving in a a car with diplomatic plates, a bulletproof vehicle, when they were ambushed by these two uh vehicles full of setas who ended up killing one and one surviving with the bullet wounds. One of the reasons I look at this incident in detail for this book is because I mean there's thousands of murders with guns every month in Mexico. I mean there's about 3,000 murders in some months in Mexico. But this particular killing, because it was of American agents, there was a, a big investigation into it by U.S federal uh, agencies, by senators and so forth. So we, we can track the weapons that were used in that attack, some of obviously that attack, in, in, a, in a big way. so we can track them in this case, all the way back to a gun factory in Romania. Transylvania, Romania, where these guns were made and then how they were imported legally into the United States by a company with a big warehouse in Vermont, taken to Texas where they were sold then to black market players, crossed that invisible line and went to the black market and then were trafficked over to Mexico. So you see all the kind of links in this chain and how this came about. And there's quite incredible things like in in, in one, one of these weapons. A guy walked into a shop in Beaumont, Texas, into a pawn shop and bought 10 AK-47s, all identical models, um, including one of the weapons that would be used in this attack. And he was an Iraq veteran. He was paid by a guy who was buying marijuana, buying weed from. Uh, He was uh, paid by him $600 or $60 per weapon to go in there and buy with his real name these 10 identical guns. No alarm was raised even though someone walks to the shop and buys ten AK forty sevens and you know, this guy who was selling him marijuana was also involved with the setas drug cartel and, and those weapons would get passed down the pipeline to the setas.
0: Why are AK forty sevens, which were originally released to the public in nineteen forty seven, such a popular gun, especially with the illegal gun trade?
1: So the AK-47 is an important gun to understand to understand violence in the world today, but also it's important to understand the AK-47 alongside other guns which have similar capabilities, including the AR-15 or the M16 military version, the uh, um, Heckler & Koch uh, G3, um, other other weapons, of the Belgian Fal, and these various weapons that people say assault rifle the uh, some of the gun enthusiasts don't like that term they respond my rifle never assaulted anybody <laughs> um, and, and you do realize the term is a bit vague but we're talking about rifles that can be semi-automatic or fully automatic um, and how it could have large ammunition clips and other details uh, which make them very effective weapons so what the what happened with the ak-47? Was this revolutionised warfare and other guns that came in then revolutionised it, particularly with the fully automatic capabilities, um, where you can you know put your finger on the trigger and it can keep on spraying bullets until you know there's run out of, run out of bullets to spray or or, or your your finger comes off. Uh, and so the AK-47, if you do that, can, can fire uh, ten bullets uh, a second. Um, so you can fire at pretty pretty fast rates. Um, now, when this when this revolutionised warfare, because suddenly it changed and you know the whole the whole nature of fighting changed. Saying that 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 kind of semi-automatic stroke automatic thing is 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 something you know should look into? And you realise that even you know it's the the semi-automatics are still very very potent lethal weapons. And if you look at some of these mass shootings and, you you know, you see someone goes in with a a semi-automatic, like in the case in Florida, um, using a semi-automatic gun, it still can kill very large amounts of people. Um, And even in modern warfare, they're not really using fully automatic much because nowadays warfare has adapted to the fact that there are weapons with this capability. so people then are hiding more and kind of moving around. But still, if you look at the way that the fighting is developed in Mexico, and why the cartels, the drug traffickers, love uh, AK-47s and AR-15s. Um, you know, these are very effective weapons that they can use to take out civilians in massacres, to fight with police, to fight with soldiers, to fight with other cartels.
0: Well, it's interesting also that Considering when this gun was released in the late 1940s, which of course was at the start of the Cold War, that it led to a sort of Cold War pissing contest with the U.S., who they themselves then have to come up with their own gun along these lines. So they come out with the AR 15 in the early 1950s, and Pentagon researchers are actually testing it out versus its Russian competitor throughout that time. How did they test them, and what was ultimately learned there?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, a crazy story. Uh... So when the AR-15 was developed in Hollywood of all places and I I went, I wanted to go to the place where the AR-15 was made, you know, know, I found the address um, in this old workshop in Hollywood uh, by this guy, Eugene Stoner. And when I got there, it was now a pet hospital, Um, you know, funny enough in this kind of Hollywood place with like marijuana dispensaries and and gay bars close to it. know, very, very different from we you imagine how, you know, the place where America's rifle was invented. Uh, but back there and it became the, the, the late 50s when they're working on this rifle and they developed the AR-15. Um, they were developing a rifle, wanted to, to, to have a, an infantry rifle for the United States military. It took a while for them to get the this, this sale, So they were taking on the road. First of all, they gave it some <coughs> some South Vietnamese troops, you know, a couple of other, other, other places. But then the, uh, the Pentagon were looking, can this be our, our main infantry rifle? And they've they've got these AK-47s and AR-15s for tests. And this is uh, early 1960s. And first of all, they've got these goats, live goats, like, uh, you know, uh, tied up, secured in these places and sprayed them with these guns. And then they wanted to test it on human heads. But they couldn't have, they didn't have available heads in the United States to blow apart with these guns. So they imported some heads from India. Wow! Now, because they have been on this long ride and they'd taken a while, then they they've lost a bit of their certain liquid substance you have in, in, in kind of brain material. So they, they put this kind of gel inside these heads and then blew them apart with these guns. I mean, you know, surreal, <laughs> a surreal part of history. And uh, what they found was that the M16 AR-15s were blowing apart their heads into more pieces than the AK-47s, these are, more, these are potent rifles. It was then approved, that's when it became the M16. It was approved for the military, and then the M16 was out there, the AR-15 civilian version was marketed as a semi-automatic because of the laws in the United States. And then there were some issues in Vietnam, with initially with the M16, and um, with jamming issues and so forth, which is a debate about how much they might have contributed to America losing the war in Vietnam but eventually over the years the problems with the M16 were smoothed out. So
0: the most important piece of gun legislation in this country's history is obviously the Second Amendment. Why is the Gun Control Act of 1968 the second most important?
1: So the 1968 uh, GCAA as they say it is uh, really creates the modern framework for policing guns you also had before then you know 1934 national firearms act uh, and that was to restrict uh, machine guns uh so you, you know after the times of al capone and that kind of thing you started restricting uh fully automatic machine guns and that was done through his machine gun tax but what the 1968 act did and this was responding to rising gun violence in the 1960s but also to things like the Black Panthers going into Sacramento with their firearms uh, in, their, in their protests there. That was you know, you know, uh, also part of what was pushing uh, for this act. And then also the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King Jr. and so forth. So the idea was this main thing was to restrict firearms going to certain people. So this is the first said, you know you're gonna have a budget category with people with people who could not have firearms including felons criminals with felony offenses including people who are mentally ill uh, including people who have you know, certain domestic violence convictions now they also reduced to have these uh, new legislation and these new restricted categories they're bought in this form The federal form seventy three, or bought in this form, people fill out. So you fill out a form when you buy a firearm, saying I'm not a felon, all these kind of things. And it also then to start bringing this pleasing with new things. This brought around the uh, ATF, the the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. It had been inside the Treasury Department for some time. It had this kind of long history. But they, after this legislation to to enforce these new laws, it was it came about and really became its own agency in the early 1970s. It all became inside the Justice Department um, as its own agency inside there.
0: Yeah, July first, 1972. Is the ATF good at reducing gun crimes, in your opinion?
1: I think they've got a mixed record. I think it's a mixed record, and and it shows some of the big paradoxes in the United States. Around guns. On one side, they have stopped certain gun crime. They have gone after certain violent criminals and and hit them hard and people who are moving guns, trafficking guns inside the United States, or, or often it's going for violent felons who who having who have guns. So so you know, somebody who's already been convicted of a felony, uh, then they uh they can't have guns after that nineteen sixty eight GCA. So then they can then, you know, send their undercover agents, realize they are using guns and then they can get them on those things. So you have seen that and you have seen since they began their enforcement and really came in the swing of their enforcement. If you look at their operations in the 80s and 90s, the 20 hundreds, and you see a reduction in gun crime in some of these times, I think enforcement, federal law enforcement is part of that. I think the fact that in the United States, they have got this, this you know, powerful federal law enforcement hitting organized crime. Is part of why the United States doesn't suffer from the same levels of, of violent, crazy criminality that you see in Latin America. On the flip side, there's a bunch of um, bad things the ATF have done, uh, including the the, the words being Fast and Furious, and I'm going to talk about that in in more detail separately. But Fast and Furious, where they in this operation, this sting operation, were watching almost 2,000 firearms be trafficked to Mexico, go to the hands of cartels. It was a very, very botched operation. Then you have a lot of restrictions on the ATF, like another federal agency. In the you know, quite crazy things, I discovered that, that things like they are not allowed to track. Digitally, a a smoking gun, the serial number of a smoking gun from a crime scene. So literally, you know, you go to a murder scene, the smoking guns there, the local cop picks it up and calls the ATF and says, trace this gun. We've got the gun. They go, you know, we can't do that. Um, We're going to need to phone up the person who made the gun, see who they sold it to and then go through. And the average trace time is 11 days because of these restrictions, because of the, the power of the gun lobby in stopping um, certain powers of the ATF. And a kind of another, another angle is because of that, you see the ATF sometimes being too, um, not hard enough or, or being very soft and cautious with the way they police gun shops. So you see accusations like if, you know, really find out the gun shops been selling weapons off the books. And that could be the criminals, and I say, well, don't do it again. It'll give you a warning this time. So this kind of thing, because they're very concerned about the uh, the ATF, about the the ATF, are very concerned about the gun lobby, hitting back.
0: Okay, so you just mentioned the powerful gun lobby, which of course is the NRA, and it was surprising to learn in this book that the NRA was founded by Civil War vets in 1871 in New York, of all places. They were actually former Union soldiers, these guys who founded the NRA, one of whom worked for the New York Times. I mean, this story couldn't get more ironic, this founding story. And they actually started it up to help others practice marksmanship after they realized in the Civil War that so many guys were bad shots. So when and why did the NRA turn into this political force that we know of it as today?
1: Yeah, so as you say, it's a a crazy story that the NRA began as— um, as this organization linked to the Union in the, in, the, in the war. And they supported gun legislation right through the 1930s. They supported the 1934 Act. In 1968, they supported the 1968 Act. And it wasn't until the 1970s that there was this radicalization of the NRA. And this happened uh, under the this guy, Harlan Carter, who was from or grew up in Laredo, Texas son of a border patrol agent who'd killed a Mexican teenager when he was 17 in a controversial incident. He was originally convicted of that killing and then that conviction was overthrown and overthrown and these various things. He went on to lead the entire border patrol and he had this much more radical position. And I think this, this reflects as well uh, that in the 1960s and 1970s, you had this rising gun crime on the streets And people were concerned for their safety. And there was a lot of people wanting guns more for self-defense, worried about crime, that kind of thing. And he reflected much more that side of people and had this very strong political convictions. And I think what comes is this kind of big uh, ideas in, in the gun rights movement, the Second Amendment movement, this idea of very kind of fundamentalist idea of the Second Amendment so the idea its that you know, this is really important, it's the most important amendment, and that any um, infringement on it, any um, attack on this, any, any questioning of this is really a threat to Americans. And so this idea that there can be no gun regulation, um, any regulation is an infringement. And it must be defended at all costs, And this idea of a slippery slope. So he, he had this kind of these these ideas that you kind of see growing up of, you know, the federal agents being gun grabbers, the idea that any regulation is part of a slippery slope towards taking our guns away. These very much came through with uh, Harlan Carter. And then you saw, I think, a profitability over the over this. They saw this as something which was actually profitable. And you saw this more recently with these certain consultancy companies and NRA TV. This became a popular kind of uh, media product they could sell, a lifestyle they could sell. This idea of being against and kind of, and it kind of uh, also fell in line with the populism that would be, be Donald Trump and these kind of things more recently. This idea that, you know, the media are all your enemy um, and all these kind of things, they, they kind of fell together. So then it became you know, a very politicized, quite radicalized organization, um, but also a very profitable organization.
0: One of the NRA's biggest legislative wins came in 1986 with the Firearms Owners Protection Act.
1: What did this law do? So that law was a kickback against the 1968 GCA, the Gun Control Act. So that was a way to kind of have a big win back. Uh, and that gave a lot of. Restricted a lot of ATF, um, what they could do. So things like um, an ATF can only inspect uh, a gun shop once in a year. So if it's inspected in January, they can't inspe- They cannot. They're not allowed to inspect them again for the rest of the year. These kind of things. Um, however, there was one um, in the GCS in the uh, this act. There was one thing at the end that they added on at the eleventh hour. Was actually to stop new machine guns being imported to the United States. So this is one, actually one of the interesting things as well. That like over the machine gun law, the automatic rifle thing, this stops. So now you see pre-banned machine guns being sold in the United States, uh, and they're often they could be like twenty-five thousand dollars for for all automatic rifles. Like you know people buying them at this price, and it's illegal to convert a weapon a semi-automatic to a machine gun, even if you have a paper machine gun tax. So, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about all of these laws you realise it's a lot more complicated than simply the Second Amendment and them. There's actually a really complicated mosaic of laws and regulations and people appealing against these things, and it varies from state to state and even have city ordinance and ATF interpretations of these things. So actually gun legislation in in the United States is not at all simple. It's become a very complicated affair. No
0: question about that. And even with a current issue, it's important to understand the history to get how we got there. And fast forwarding back to the present, you end up going to Baltimore for an up-close lesson on how legal guns end up illegally on the streets of some of our most impoverished urban neighborhoods. And in doing so, you examine three different aspects of how this process plays out in Baltimore. One, how illegal guns move through the streets, secondly, How this connects to a larger black market for weapons in the U.S. and across the Americas. And third, how gun violence in Baltimore compares to other North American cities with high murder rates. And in going about this journey to write this book, you met some crazy dudes with some similarly crazy nicknames along the way, like Billy Jack, who was part of a biker gang, and Chain, specifically in Baltimore. And both these guys enlightened you, and as a byproduct, me, on the economics of paying for illegal guns. How often is this a cash transaction? And when it's not, what are some of the other commodities that are used in this barter system, Yon?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, for me, it's very important to talk to the people on the street, the gun sellers, understand the gun black market, the firearms black market, which actually is not very well studied. You know, there's been a lot written about guns, but actually about the specific nature of having a firearms black market and how that operates, how that functions. So you see that a lot of the time, as well as guns being sold for cash, they're bartered. Now, when they're bartered, they're often exchanged for drugs. But these work in these interesting elastic ways. So to give be more specific, you have cocaine, which is going up in price all along, you know, in the different links of this chain. So it's made in Colombia. Uh, first step is is having the leaves of coca plants processed into a, ke- a kilo of cocaine. Then it's moved. That kilo's worth about $2,000. It becomes about $30,000 by the time it hits the border. Then it gets moved in different stages. So it's rapidly going up all the time. So people with this cocaine um, will often exchange that. And the person they exchange it with, that cocaine is going to be then worth more to them. So that's one reason why drugs... A uh, useful bartering products. This also happens at more of a local level. So, an example: if some this this dealer chain in Baltimore, some guy comes from Virginia to him and wants some heroin, and he's got you know a gun that he's got from he might have stolen from his family gun store. Now, that heroin might only be worth it might be a piece of heroin is only worth a couple of hundred dollars to chain, but when this guy goes back to his small town in Virginia, it's worth a thousand dollars. So that suddenly that Drug is worth a lot more to him where he can sell it than it is to him. Likewise, that gun is worth more on the streets of Baltimore than it is in a small town in Virginia. So you see these ways that these these, these products can be uh, exchanged in this way. You see it all along the the, the 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 different process. You know, I see you see in Colombia the, the FARC rebels or these FARC guerrillas um, who are pro- making cocaine or, or controlling the making cocaine and also exchanging large amounts of cocaine. For large amounts of firearms with different traffickers some of those firearms actually come from the united states in this long path so you see that that, that kind of elastic prices of drugs and guns and the way they, they 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 really come together that's one thing i found in this book the way that drugs and the, the illegal drug trade and the illegal gun trade are so connected they're like you know i say they're like wound around each other like two venomous plants tied together
0: other cities have found ways to reduce gun violence this century on, but not Baltimore. What is Baltimore's gun trace task force and why has it failed so miserably?
1: If you look at the failures in Baltimore there for various reasons and, and you know, there's a lot of deep reasons about why violence in Baltimore was so high and it didn't enjoy the lowering of crime rates that many cities did in the United States, including New York los angeles and chicago and then since then they're bouncing back again especially chicago there's various reasons about baltimore but particularly with the issue of guns and the failure of, of the the task force there um there's some horrific corruption inside the police in baltimore uh, and then that task force they were found they were taking guns off the streets they were encouraged to, to be going to, to out on the street and to be empowered. But they were also doing things like stealing drugs from drug dealers, reselling those drugs themselves, uh, working um, for drug dealers um, and using very aggressive tactics such as, uh, you know, one of their tactics just to pick up drugs and guns was to speed really fast in an unmarked car into a bunch of people on a corner and then run out whoever runs away putting them down <laughs> and, yeah. and, and and searching and arresting them so very very aggressive if tactics and they were um, arrested um, and convicted of, you know of the of these crimes
0: wow so that is north of the border. South of the border, obviously, uh, things get much more dicey. You live in Mexico City. You've seen it up close and personal. You've traveled all across that country. The U.S.-Mexico border is, as long as it is, politically divisive in this country. How long have weapons been trafficked along the border?
1: So, weapons have been trafficked along the border since the border was first created. Hmm. Um, And, in fact, before... Weapons have been trafficked along that same piece of land before that border was created. If you look at Mexico's War of Independence, uh, which began in 1810, then there were weapons trafficked from the United States to uh, Morelos, the fighter priest there. Uh, The border was created in the mid-19th century. Uh, Following that, you saw guns going down in the Mexican Revolution. And uh, Zapata, Milano Zapata, famous Mexican revolutionary, he was getting guns from the United States, old frontier weapons, old you know weapons of, um, of, of the West being then in Mexico, being used in the revolution. Um, and you saw in the late 20th century, uh, you know, one famous killing of a president, uh, a Mexican presidential candidate, Colosio, that was with a gun trafficked in the United States. So this has been happening for a long time, but we saw a massive increase in the 20th century. With the rise of the violence here, which I call the Mexican drug war,
0: how do Mexican gun laws compare to here in the U.S.?
1: So Mexican gun laws are not as stringent as some think or as many kind of you know misinterpret. There is a sec- there is an, an amendment in Mexico, a right to bear arms, in uh, you know, a, 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 a rather an article in the constitution which gives a, a right to bear arms. Um. However, it's much more difficult. There's actually only one gun shop where you can buy guns here legally. That's run by the military. You have to go through a bunch of metal detectors. You have to have a you know bunch of ID, hand in your, your cell phone, and then hand in seven pieces of paperwork to buy a gun, including a, cre- a clean criminal record and a letter from your employer, and then wait several months to get the gun. So there's... Uh, you know, it's a lot more difficult. And when you get the gun, you're going to be on a gun registry. So a lot of criminals, the cartels, they prefer to get their guns in the United States with no paperwork at all hmm. or through straw buyers that hide their paper trail um, and bring them down to Mexico. And They're going to be cheaper that way as well.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, you actually sought out a black market gun in Mexico City, somebody who just sells them to individuals, not necessarily with gang affiliations. And you found a guy named Valentino. And in asking about his backstory into this underworld, he made a pretty sad admission. When and where did he start selling guns like this? And why is this so important in the overall investigation of gun trafficking in Mexico?
1: So, yeah, yeah crazy story that Valentino... Um, began in the military. Um and this is this is an important side of things as well that you know that which people will kick back on in the United States. So well also you've got very, you know, lose corruption in Mexico. And that's true. You know, there's problems on both sides of the border with this. But he began in the military. He began carrying out assassinations in the military uh, for corrupt uh high-ranking officers and he began selling guns in the military, and and he said it would be, you know, they would get guns from criminals. They might go in the mountains and take, find some heroin producers, take a bunch of guns away, and then they would give, sell those guns back within the military. It was a very good place to sell guns, he said, because you have a bunch of people from all over the country with their own networks, in different neighborhoods, different villages, so you can sell guns there and take them back. And then when he left the military, he carried on selling guns. And he would get them from military or police contacts and, again, mostly be selling guns that were taken from criminals and they were just resold onto the streets. Well,
0: wow. How complicit is the Mexican government with all the gun trafficking going on and then also the violence, too, to boot?
1: So, the, the you know, within Mexico, there's, there's no secret. There's a huge problem with corruption here. Um, there's some of it, you could say, is this state capture, you know, meaning when you have very high-ranking officials generals working for drug traffickers, does that mean you have criminal organizations who have captured part of the state apparatus people talk about even the phrase narco state I think it's a complicated issue uh, if you look at the Mexican government it suffers horrific corruption uh, and but this changes this is constantly changing you'll, you'll, you'll find a corrupt official they'll go to prison the corruption is not all on the same page you have different officials working for different criminal organisations There's an attempt to try and clean this out and so forth. But yeah, I mean, without doubt, there's a huge, huge problem with corruption and there's some horrific examples like police officers, you know, police commanders who are actually uh, high-level cartel operatives. You know, not just being paid money to turn a blind eye for the cartel, but carrying out mass murder for the cartels uh and operating as cartel figures, cartel, you know, powerful cartel figures. So yeah, obviously an immense problem there that is also has to be challenged. Oh.
0: Wow. And obviously the gun culture in this country is a major piece to this puzzle. You, know, and you mentioned earlier that some of the criminals in Mexico, they just skirt having to deal with paperwork and anything else by getting their guns north of the border. You went searching for this on your own, I believe, at a gun show in Dallas. How difficult is it to buy a gun without any form of ID or any paperwork to figure out in this country?
1: Yeah, we found out it was pretty easy. I uh, went there with a, with a colleague. Uh, and we were walking around the gun show. First of all, we we checked with the people, uh, you know, can we buy a gun? We haven't got any ID. And there's first of all people saying, oh, no, you need Texas ID, you know, because they were licensed gun sellers. Um, But then we found the people who were private sellers, supposedly private sellers. And they were like, yeah, you know, you can no ID, you can just take the gun. But some of them were not really private sellers. This gets to the private sale loophole sometimes refer to the gun show loophole, but that it's a bit more confusing. The situation is uh, under the 1986 clarified this, but also it was really already under 1968. You had this loophole um, that certain people who are, so they're collectors, you know, why should they need paperwork to sell a gun? It's like, if I'm selling you an old record, I'm not a licensed record seller. I'm just selling you some of my old records or my old books. But, so that was one thing, but people are abusing this to sell large amounts of guns, and this is well documented. There's a case in Florida of somebody who sold more than 1,000 guns this way, going to gun shops, buy large amounts of weapons, take them to gun shows, and resell them to people who did not have the paperwork to buy guns. So you know, it's something which people are abusing, and it's kind of incredible that they can get away with this, that individuals can get away buying 1,000 weapons from gun shops. And there's no red light saying why well, you need a thousand weapons. You know what individual needs a thousand guns, and really they're simply buying them to resell to make some money. Um, so you see, there's abused, and you know cartels are you know abusing that, abusing the straw buying um, issue, which is paying somebody to go and buy guns, like I discussed earlier. Often they pay them a hundred dollars to buy a gun because people would not be convicted um, of any federal. Firearms trafficking offenses, because there is no federal firearms trafficking law, they will simply be convicted of lying on the form, and the recommended punishment is probation.
0: And you said those are straw
1: buyers? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so straw most straw buyers will only get probation, and that's why, again, the traffickers are abusing this and able to acquire such a large amount of weaponry.
0: Well, and while people may connect the U.S. to Mexico with regards to how guns get into that country, the U.S. is really a distributor for guns all across the globe. And South Florida is a sort of fulcrum for guns acquired and trafficked across the world. And one of the most popular destinations for these weapons is in Honduras. And things are pretty dire there, Yon. And uh, one of the most gut-wrenching stories in this book came from a former Honduran gangster that you spoke with named Fressa. What did he tell you about what he was doing in his childhood and early adolescence?
1: Yeah, so fresh, I mean, he was not former. He was an active gang member when I talked to him, and he's since been um, murdered himself. But he was somebody who, who I met you know, a couple of times in Honduras. You know, I, went, I met him and re met him again and, and eventually got his full story, which we videotaped his full, you know, I, call, I call it a confession, really, he grew up in a very hard situation. He grew up on the street, abandoned. And then, when he was a young teenager, he was involved with our street kid. They butchered a whole family uh, with knives. And then, he carried out, when he was a, a teenager, a, a, a paid hit, killed somebody in a bus, blew their brains out, and then became a professional hitman. And was yeah really crazy uh going around doing a whole bunch of these professional hits and and, uh including decapitating people when it was paid for so really 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 gruesome stuff i think when when i interview him and other people i've talked to like him i think it's very really grabs my attention trying to understand who they are as human beings how they can do this kind of evil stuff uh i think to understand the violence, we have to understand, not just, you know, we have to understand them, but also how they're recruited, how these things come about, how they're brought into these organizations. And, yeah, it's, it's pretty it's pretty terrifying testimony.
0: Well, along those lines, it's interesting that only a small percentage of gang members typically kill. And you've spoken with hitmen in the U.S. and across Latin America. Are there any common traits amongst these guys and their
1: upbringings or otherwise? So, yeah, it's interesting Uh with different types of people involved in organized crime, I see different traits. So, say, with drug sellers, people who sell drugs or traffic drugs, I find you can find them from all social classes. You know, I grew up around people who were um, selling drugs, you know, in my town in the UK, people around that, and they raised a lot in their social backgrounds from people who were living on the, you know, in what we call council estates, which are public housing to people who are going to quite well-off private schools are also selling drugs. I think selling drugs can appeal to a massive range of people and people who can be, who they get into it well, people who can be quite entrepreneurial or have a certain entrepreneurial idea. People who are leaders, who are natural leaders of criminal organisations, they have certain traits. They can be from the harder backgrounds or the harder areas, but can be from the better-off environments in those areas, be more educated Within those areas. So you see, sometimes people who are, you know, who have become the bosses of these organizations can have more education, even though they're from these very difficult areas. And they're people with a very much, you know, a lot of charisma, a natural kind of leadership uh, that you see, you know, these kind of natural, uh, you know, natural leaders that come from these areas often. Um, I would say that the hitmen, the assassins, uh, are often people with low education and with very difficult, uh, often abusive environments. Uh, People who uh, might've been abandoned, um, you know, in the case of Fressa, in the case of a guy called Coleon, I talked to him in Baltimore. um, He, uh, you know, his father was imprisoned for murder when he was like two weeks old. His mother was a, a, a drug addict. So he came from a very, very difficult environment that's off the profile i see. But people also have a lot of nerve uh, when it comes down to committing murder. It is too easy to commit murder with guns. And that's what some of these guys themselves, like Kareleon said, it's too easy to commit a murder with a gun. You know, you stand there, you pull the trigger and they're dead. But it does take a certain amount of nerve. And some people have the nerve. Some people will, will, um, will freak out and you know, will not go, will not follow through in the situations. Some people have a nerve to carry out killing after killing after killing. So I think that's some of the features that I see in these different types of criminals.
0: That was a fascinating point that was made in this book. And, you know, some people here like to point out that even though guns have now been banned over in the UK, let's say, that knife crimes are still a thing. But the percentage of knife crimes go down significantly versus gun crimes because it is a more personalized version of inflicting pain or damage on an individual versus the ease of doing it by just pointing a gun and, and clicking the trigger.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a point that was made to me by by various uh, criminals or ex criminals who, who'd experienced this. But I think it's, it, you know they said that, that it's much more personal to be stabbing someone. You're up very very close. You can smell them. You can hear them. You can feel them. Whereas guns, you could do things like drive past in a car and just fire a gun at somebody. Yeah. Or these mass shooters, you know, who just walk in and they just fire from a distance. You're much more disconnected uh, from the bloodletting you're doing. Why
0: are Central American refugees an important group to know about on the subject of gun trafficking?
1: So in the last few years, we've seen the border crisis in the United States have really been about Central Americans uh, as opposed to the Mexican uh, migrants. There's been a steady uh, amount of Mexicans crossing the border for many, many years, many decades. But the increased numbers that have really showed up in the last I would argue three migrant crises, which are 2014, 2018 to 19, and the current one, has all been numbers from Central America, particularly from the Northern Triangle of Central America, which is Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. And many of those people are fleeing violence. So large numbers have direct stories where they're fleeing for their lives because someone's threatened to kill them, because they survived the first hit, because they've been a witness to a murder because they've been shaken down over their store and just run away. These various things where various people are are fleeing directly violence and, and arriving on the border with claims of asylum in the United States, fleeing violence. But also other people who are fleeing poverty in these countries, that is also linked to the violence because you have people who are doing shakedowns on stores, for example, in a massive level in Honduras, in El Salvador, Guatemala. That destroys businesses, which destroys opportunities. So, also people fleeing the poverty and the hopelessness is also connected to the violence of those countries. And that, that violence in those countries is also linked to the United States gun trade. So, we have this, again, this iron river of guns pouring into Mexico, and these guns pouring round sometimes through Mexico, sometimes via Florida to Honduras and the other countries in Central America.
0: And while those Central American countries, some South American countries, Mexico obviously have their own version of this gun violence pandemic, it certainly exists here in the U.S. as well. Is there an obvious solution for you specifically here in the U.S. with regards to how to get a better handle and get just the crazy rash of gun violence under control, something that seems to just be accelerating by the week, if not by the day at this point?
1: Yeah, so... I think um, in terms of the U.S. gun debate, I mean, the, the book itself is, is more of a book of investigation. Uh, but I, I look, would with, say, within this investigation, these are things that I see that you could do right away. Now, I see a lot of low-hanging fruit that can be done without getting into the really controversial issues. So like things like uh, stopping the universal, stopping the, uh, the loopholes, the universal background check supported by, 89% of Americans, some surveys, 81% of conservatives, the majority of gun owners. So you have to ask, how come that is still not happened? Even though you have all this gun violence and shootings, that's not happened yet. You know, basic things saying that, you know, there's a law, there's law about who can buy guns and there's no special loophole that, you know, you can sneak out of that, you know, basic check, background checks. Having uh, some st- stiffer sentences on straw buyers, so if somebody is buying being paid by a gang or a cartel to go and buy a gun, then rather than just having probation and saying you lied, in the form of probation, saying well you're going to have some serious um, time for this, and having you no know, saying this is we take this crime seriously. Um, these things are quite low-hanging fruit, which are not being done. So I see there's a whole bunch of things there that can be done to really try and move forward. There's still deeper things to debate. I mean, it's still deeper to debate about things like the AR-15s who can have them. I think even extended background checks on these can make a big difference. And other weapons like 50 caliber, 50 caliber rifles, which are a big deal in Mexico, these big guns firing, bullets that are like the size of small knives. So there's um, a lot of kind of things that could be discussed here, which, which don't really get into saying we're going to stop the Second Amendment. I think this could be done from the center, it could be done on the idea of that they were simply trying to try to bring the the kind of cultural war debate out of this and try and look at it as a as a as an issue like you're dealing like with you know cars or so forth you know car crashes and so you say things like hey, you have to wear seatbelts you have to pass a driver's test you've got to have a speed limit you know you've got a right to drive no one's saying you haven't but you just got certain things I think trying to look at guns in that way could make Uh, could try and make some, some reduce the violence we say right now it's kind of a very very crazy situation where the kind of basic laws are kind of all over the place and and a lot of these basic things are not enforced
0: do you think it would make a big difference if we started to use words like terrorist and terrorism more liberally as suggested by noam chomsky
1: so the, the, the debate around terrorism is an interesting one, and it, it gets into some of this. You know, we talk about because we have the, the the attacks, which are effectively terror attacks when somebody goes in with a gun and and, and murders a bunch of people for a political cause. I mean, we so see people who you know they're doing it for a kind of broadly a political thing. You know, when you see the case in in Florida uh, of the shootings there uh, in the the nightclub in Florida, uh, in the gay nightclub in Florida. Was that a a politicized attack or was it, you know, somebody who was some crazy guy? When you see um, El Paso, it looks more obviously politicized attack. There's debates and and some of them, I think, certainly terrorism does apply to these things. But I don't know if if using the word terrorism more liberally is is a way to solve this issue. Uh, I I think it's, uh, you know, we, we can. I, you know, I will use it, and I will definitely say that at the attack in El Paso when the guy deliberately murdered a bunch of uh, people who thought we were Mexican in a supermarket, in a Walmart, you know, that was a, a terrorist attack, in my view, without a doubt. Um, but the, I, I think the real solution to this is trying to find better ways of stopping the guns, getting to the hands of the worst people, and also other, a bunch of other issues as well. We've got to look at the drug trade you got to look at the, the backgrounds that people are coming from that are recruited into gun violence and a whole bunch of other issues as well.
0: 3D-printed guns first caught the public's eye in 2013. Are they a cause for concern for you?
1: So 3D-printed guns are, are, are an interesting one. Uh, there was an overhype about them when they first came to public attention. Uh, there was, I think, there was misreported. Uh, there was this gun which came out, was printed by this young uh, entrepreneur who had the plans for it. And there was hype about this, you know, that, you know hype saying, well, now this whole debate's over because everyone can just print their own gun up at home. Now that gun, the Liberator, it was called, was not an effective weapon. Um, they did tests and it would blow up in people's faces or crack very fast. Uh, criminals were not going to be using these to go you know, into gunfights. They'd be pretty laughed at if they had these kind of things. You know, they wouldn't want to risk that. So that was not a game changer in itself. Now, there's another issue which has been often conflated with this, which is buying parts off the internet. And that is a big issue. People buying parts for, for gun, gun kits, assembling guns in in large numbers. And that is a big issue. And they talk about that. Ghost guns are really the, the bigger problem with those. However, with... Three D printed guns. um, There are. There are. It it is developing more and more all the time. So we'll see. There are some claims now that some of the guns, even that have come out in the last few months, have now become um, better, Um, and they're not totally three D printed. You know, they'll three D print most of the gun, and then have some other parts. They'll you know you buy commercially. But some of them are getting more sophisticated uh, and we'll see we'll see how they affect this whole thing.
0: Final question, Yon. It is interesting to put the pieces together to realize that the war on guns started at about the same time as the war on drugs by the Nixon administration in the late 60s and early 1970s. Could drug policy reform help to lessen gun trafficking in your mind?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And yes, it's interesting though he said that they're both around the same time or or you had the 1968 Gun Control Act and the war on drugs starting in 1971. So, so yeah, there is a close connection there between drugs and guns. Um, In my opinion, the war on drugs has been a a total failure. In 1971, as defined by Richard Nixon, uh, he talked about how drugs would be abolished for American life, there would be no heroin in the, in the United States. It would get rid of this issue completely. And we see fifty years later, record overdose deaths. Uh, Eighty-three thousand, I think, it was, it was twenty twenty. It was like you know, really crazy number. So I think the basic premise um, of the war on drugs—the idea that through very aggressive law enforcement, that is like a war, can stop or substantially reduce drugs and they're not around, and that has basically failed. So we have to look at drug policy with drug policy reform as being reducing the problems. So reduce the number of Americans dying of overdoses through a lot of rehabilitation and try and reduce the violence around the drug trade as well. Now, it's not easy. It's not as easy as pressing a button and saying just legalize all these things. Uh, it's about you know I think legalising marijuana. That's that debate I think has been had now. That conversation, I think we should move forward now for this kind of having a a, a, a you know basically more generalised legalised marijuana market. But it's it's very tough to know how to deal with the other drugs still. You know heroin, crystal meth, cocaine. But one thing we can agree on is that addicts need help. And right now, only according to the American Medical Association, only about 10% of addicts get the help they need, which still, again, is low-hanging fruit, 90%. Um, But just to kind of round up there, I mean, uh, I'm not saying uh, ban guns and and legalise all drugs. Not not as simple as that. (laughs) I think we need sensible regulation on both of these. I think both of these drugs and guns have been, you know, two parts of modern life, modern American life and modern global life in a big way and we're going to come to terms and have decent ways of dealing with these two things
0: well said he is yon grillo he is a journalist for the new york times based out of mexico city who specializes in crime and drugs he's also an award-winning author his newest book is blood gun money how america arms gangs and cartels yon thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this excellent and important book
1: thank you so much anytime trey all the best there
0: And thanks to you for listening. If you like this book or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, just go ahead and click on the book title through the episode description, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org, a website that connects readers with independent bookstores. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.